This, uh, this book is very much centered around the idea of faith and perseverance. And here in chapter 10, this is continuing. Also, there's the other centerpiece, which is related to these, is the centrality of Jesus. That's what the book started off with, and it transitioned into the importance of faith and perseverance, specifically in relation to Jesus. And so those are not two separate themes. Those are actually, well, they're actually one theme. It's Jesus is exalted, and you should be having faith and you should persevere until the end of your faith till him, in Him. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to continue this. But let's go back to, instead of starting where we stopped, which was technically Hebrews 10, 19, let's go back a little bit to Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And last time we talked about that one. It's got a a very important theological point of even though Christians remain in this life sinners, we are also perfected. Yet, we are in the process of being perfected. All right? God considers us complete, yet we are still being sanctified in this life. Both of those things are true for us. In verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31. He now skips to the end of the quote. What will be the result of this new covenant? It will be, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so that's where we ended last time. But this is going to be brought up almost immediately again in the next couple of paragraphs. Okay. And here's the notion there. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you say it in one way, it can sound very negative, and if you say it in another way, it can sound very positive. And Hebrews, in this chapter, the author, whoever he is, is going to mean it in both ways. Here, it's positive. All right? Here's what I mean. If Jesus were to offer himself, and then it was necessary for you to continue to offer sacrifices, then you couldn't say this. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No, if you had to keep sacrificing, there would still be sin offerings. All right? And so this is a positive statement. This is a good thing. All right? Where there is such a complete forgiveness that God will no longer remember their sins and lawless deeds no more, there is no longer any offering for sin. All right? That's kind of the whole point of this of this focus on Jesus giving himself once. If there's that, there's no longer any offering for sin. That's not bad. It sounds bad. There's no longer any offering for sin. It sounds bad. It's not. It's good. It's done. There's no other offerings that are all needed. Now, in just a moment, he's going to transition into a, a, um, a negative application of that. 
But let's continue. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The previous theological statement is followed up by three paragraphs of practical application, you could say. If there is no longer any offerings for sin... If that one, that one offering for sin has done it all. all right. Therefore, the first practical ramification of that is we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay? Now, an image. And we've seen this image before. He's going back to it once again. Because he repeats himself just like I do. All right, you will recognize this picture, right? This is a picture of the tabernacle, right? Picture of the tabernacle. He's already made the theological point that if the, uh, if the people, if the hoi polloi are out here, then none of these people can access God. And the reason why none of them can access God is this temple, this, this, excuse me, this curtain, this wall, all right, separates them from God. Okay? Now he said that this gets to go away, right? That's one of the theological points that he makes. Is there still a wall between God and mankind? Yes, in fact, there is. All right? What is the wall? All right. Well, if we go go back to here, let's read verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain. So there is a wall. There is a curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So... What tabernacle, what tabernacle are we talking about here? Are we talking about the physical tabernacle? Are we talking about the temple right here? The physical temple on earth? No. Are we talking about the physical tabernacle on earth? No. Remember, we've already discussed that he's like the, the physical tabernacle is an image of the heavenly tabernacle. All right? Physical is an image of the heavenly tabernacle. Can mankind enter into the Holy of Holies? Not on the earth. Where God truly is in the heavenlies. Can man enter in? And if that's the case, what's the mechanism for doing so? Alright, what is the mechanism for doing so? And the answer is, through the flesh of Jesus. And so here, if we think about, okay, how do we, where is, where is God? Where is God? 
God is in heaven. How do we get there? This is an extremely, not monotheist, this is a, an extremely narrow definition of how to get to God. All right? It is through the flesh of Jesus. Now, think more broadly, once again. The book of Hebrews. Who is he talking to in general? Well, he's talking to Christians. We know that. Well, what's the context of that? Is he dealing with Christians hundreds of years after the New Testament? Well, no. This was written shortly, you know, shortly after Jesus died, within decades. However many decades, who knows? All right. So we're talking here with Christians who are also very much involved in their daily lives with Jews. And many Christians who would have come straight out of the synagogue. Christians who would have been practicing Jews. All right? And so when somebody comes to you, if you're a practicing Jew, for example, and you talk to this practicing Jew and there's a temple in Jerusalem, you ask the practicing Jew, okay, where's God? Well, he's in heaven. But also his feet, his throne is on Mount Zion in the temple. That's where his presence is. That's why we have a temple. So that God has a place. And you as a Christian, theologically, say, no, actually. God is not there in that temple. Right? As a matter of fact, we reject that temple. We do not consider that temple to be the true access to God. What is, in fact, the only true access to God? There is a curtain. And who gives you access Jesus gives you access through his flesh. All right. So through the flesh of Christ, through the body of Christ, all right, through, and that implication here being through the death of Christ, Christ is the sacrifice. We get access to it. So that's the first thing, is now he's talking about, once again, keeping the image of the tabernacle. And keeping the image of the fact that there is a true God, all right, and that there is access to him, and but is only through Jesus. Now, is, does everyone have access to God? No, not everyone has access to God, and that's the point. Not everyone has access to God. Who has access to God? Those who believe in Christ and can access through the flesh of Christ. So, therefore, in 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And this is recycling language he's already been using. Evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Then let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the first practical all right, the first practical ramification to come out of this theological discussion is that we must, with confidence, draw near to Jesus and that we should meet together as a group to encourage each other to do so. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is not a solo sport, all right, for those who like athletics analogies. All right, it's not. It is something that we should do, do as a group. Now, for the next paragraph, once again, let's go back to our context. It's primarily written to people within the Christian community. This is not going to be read in synagogues. This is going to be read to Christians. And there's this idea, I think it's fairly evident in the book, that a lot of people were very tempted 
to just go back to Judaism. Okay? And that is not something that is appropriate. Next paragraph. So Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's the negative of what we just talked about. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Here's the negative. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But let's go ahead and read the next paragraph for context. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being treated, excuse me, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have no, excuse, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." So here is the image all right, that he's trying to draw in this picture here. And I think he's trying to draw within the book. You have Judaism. You have Christianity. Or we could just call it simply the church. Okay? Before this existed, all right, were you supposed to go to synagogue? Yes. yes. Were you supposed to be involved in the sacrifices for the Day of Atonement? Yes. All, the, all that stuff is good. All right. Christianity comes along. There's a lot of conflicts between Christians and Jews. Some of those Jews leave Judaism and go into the church. This starts happening in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is founding the church, and it's founded with Jews. All the first Christians were Jews. And so you have people coming out of Judaism and into Christianity. But, as you can see in this last paragraph, there's a lot of issues. Because the, the, the focus here is on those who are suffering. All right? But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened. After you were enlightened... After you were enlightened. Okay? After you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. We, you totally see this in Acts, right? Paul, after he was enlightened, everything went great. 
wrong, right? He was beaten and stoned. All sorts of bad things happened to Paul. This is, a, this is not just Paul. This is a generic pattern that was happening. All right? As people left Judaism and started joining the church, there would have been a great deal of reproach. What do you mean you're leaving the ancestral religion? And the Christians, of course, would say, no, we're not leaving the ancestral religion. We are, this is the true one. This is Jesus the Messiah has come. All right? And so there's going to be lots of, as it says here, you're going to be publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you might get afflicted, or you might go be partners with those who are. This happened a lot in the, in the years of the first century. For you had compassion on those in prison. All right, is this about prison ministry? Not really. Actually, this is about Christians being put in prison. This is the idea. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You went through the persecution. You and you joyfully accepted people taking what is yours taking your physical possessions, all right? Because you had your hope set on something else entirely, something that was future. You took the persecution, all right? So you were enlightened. And because of that, all right, you experienced a great deal of persecution. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, with that in mind, let's back up to the previous paragraph. What happens if somebody who is in the synagogue, comes here and joins and starts meeting with the church. But then, because of persecution, he goes back. It, it's, it seems like a faith issue. It's a faith issue. Like, don't turn back. Persevere. If you don't persevere... Then you can't be saved. He who endures until the end is what you say. Yes. It's you know, not that easy when they're being persecuted a lot. But no. It's quite, it's quite difficult, right? And so in verse 26, but if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because there's only one left. Well, something has changed. Alright? Because if you recognize that Jesus is the one sacrifice for sins, and then you become an apostate. If you reject the faith, go back to Judaism, what does the author of Hebrews have to say for you? No. No. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You know, any time there's persecution and some people leave the church, all right? Some people leave the church and join those who are the persecutors, all right? They become a part of the problem, all right? When you give in to persecution... You then support those who are doing the persecuting. And you are then persecuting the church of God. What should be the expectation of that? Well, 
Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Going back to the same kind of argumentation he, he was doing in chapter 2 and chapter 3. All right, You disobeyed Moses, that was bad. Because Moses was sent by God to disobey the Son of God is worse. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Imagine that as he is walking away. That's what you're doing. Trampled underfoot the Son of God and profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Think of this as corporate. This, that's how I, I, I think of this. Is he has joined the corporate body of those who are sanctified. He has joined the corporate body of those who are, who are set aside. All right? And now, by leaving it, you trample on it as you leave. Yes, Chip? Interesting size point. That diagram can also apply to the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church, particularly during the period of the Inquisition. Okay. In, in what way, specifically? Oh, you mean they were given under persecution? That's what you're referring to. Yeah. And during the Inquisition, no doubt, some of them went back. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. Uh, in practice, uh, Roman Catholic uh, practice of going into a confessional and being absolved of your sins by a priest is directly contradictory in verse 26. Yeah, uh, it, it's... Yes, it's a very similar pattern. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Also, I think it's um, important to say that if somebody did this and they're still alive, there's still a turning back again that can happen. Mm -hmm. I think that's the point of writing this. A warning... Hey, don't do that. And if you did, think about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you continue in this, there's no sacrifice. Turn around, go back, you know. Yeah, but so much of that's implication, right? Because these this is written to those who are in that circle, saying, Don't be like those people who have come into the church and have now left. Yeah. I do believe, I, I agree, that, imp, that implication is there, but this is not who he's writing to, right? He's writing to those people saying, you need to keep meeting together and encouraging each other. All right? You, that's, what you, that's what you need to do so that you ultimately endure to the end. So to verse 30, Hebrews 10, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Cited from Deuteronomy. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And now, finally, back to that paragraph, which we've already talked about some. All right? But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. It's very easy for us to be... Um, we are, we are very private. We are not nearly as communal as they were. 
All right. If you live in this small town and you go to this synagogue, all right, you probably walk there. All right. It's very close. And it's not like there's 70 churches surrounding you. All right. And you can change churches or synagogues anytime you want to leave the, to, to leave the synagogue or to be cast out of the synagogue because of your beliefs. All right. Oh, I'll just go check out the other options. It doesn't quite work that way. All right. It's gonna. This is gonna affect you in the market. This is gonna affect you in all of your relationships. You can't just, you know, get another job and telecommute. All right. And suddenly you're with different people. They don't know what's going on. It's not like that. All right. Small communities where there's no cars, which means that most people know each other. And if someone changes their religious affiliation, it's kind of a big deal, and everyone's gonna know about it. Not big city, not modern. All right. And so when this stuff happens, the Christians bond together. Some leave and naturally join the persecuting faction. It's this whole, this whole thing right here. Now, this verse that's quoted here at the end in verse uh, 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Let's turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, chapter 2. You might recall the context, just in case you don't. You've got Habakkuk complaining to God in chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? All right, Habakkuk's having issues. This is he's in the you know he's he's a Jew within the nation. He's like there's lots of violence, there's lots of wickedness. God, when are you going to listen to me? Alright, and fix this thing. God answers, and if you want to look at one one five. All right, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And so Habakkuk is complaining, God, there's wickedness. Why don't you listen to me? And God says, I am listening and I'm sending the Babylonians to punish. Okay. So Habakkuk is happy about this or sad. Is he good? He is very bothered by this in chapter 112. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. All sounds good so far. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This is the problem. The Chaldeans are worse than the Jews, God. Why are you calling them to come judge us? This is a problem. All right. 
And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And this is what the author of Hebrews quotes. Habakkuk 2, verse 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This is what he quotes. What's he saying to Habakkuk? He's saying, it's coming. And it's coming soon. You can go tell everybody. It's coming soon, for sure, even if you don't quite see it yet. It's coming. At the beginning of verse 4, you've got, there's, there's a problem. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. It's talking about the wicked. Second line, but the righteous shall live by faith. All right? So the faith and the faithfulness of the righteous all right, is what will sustain them in this time, is the notion. Now go back to Hebrews. He quotes from the Septuagint, which is a slightly different, but the, the main points are exactly the same. Yet in a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He, he switches the order of the clauses in that last verse. Instead of the negative and then the positive, we have the positive and then the negative. But my righteous one will live by faith. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You see how, the, how this fits into the context. If he shrinks back, if he apostatizes, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the righteous one will live by faith. If you take Habakkuk, and you take, Jer- and you take the prophet listening to this, and the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are coming ultimately destroy, to destroy, right? And they did. That did happen in 587. Ultimately, Jerusalem is destroyed. Who suffered in that event? Who suffered? Everyone. Everyone suffered in that. The righteous suffered? The righteous also suffered. Ezekiel, as a prophecy, Ezekiel, righteous prophet, Ezekiel, in captivity in Babylon. Okay? So as a part of the judgment of God, all right, there came trials and tribulations for everyone. There were lots of issues going on for all. Now the righteous were already having issues during the time. That's why Habakkuk is saying something. But when the judgment comes, all right, all right, issues, there were issues for, for basically everyone involved. And so if you've got this idea as a context, all right, you've actually got how most of the judgments in the Old Testament worked. All right? There were very few judgments where when God came, it only affected the wicked. Egypt, 
All right, that was very targeted towards the wicked, was it not? All right, when you, with the killing of the firstborn, none of the firstborn of the Jews were killed, right? Because they followed God's commandments there. Or in the case of, in the New Testament, in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem, the Christians, God told the Christians, when you see this happening, get out so you don't get punished as a part of this. And so, in, at least in that part, they did escape. But during this time, all right, of general, general turmoil, the Christians are going through a lot, all right? That's to be expected. It is normal, as is true from the rest of the New Testament, it is normal for persecution to happen. It is to be expected. What he's saying is, when he's talking about the vengeance and the retribution here, is he's saying is, I know you're being punished, but those who are doing this to you, guess what's, guess what's happening? A judgment is coming. So in other words, Habakkuk, the exact scenario in Habakkuk is going to happen again. All right. It's it's you might read this and go, okay, well he's just he's actually not taking this out of context in Habakkuk and just I need this good verse on faith out of Habakkuk and I'm just gonna quote this thing. It's not that at all. It's actually the same kind of situation. The righteous are being persecuted in Habakkuk, and God is going to send uh, a punishment to those who are doing it. What about here? Same exact kind of scenario. Now, how are the righteous supposed to? How are the righteous supposed to live in light of the fact that punishment is coming? Well, to Habakkuk, God says the righteous will live by faith. To the author of Hebrews, what is the righteous to do? The righteous is to live by faith and perseverance until the end. They are not in the middle of the persecution to apostatize and leave the church and go back to Judaism. And so, the author of Hebrews here is just using his Old Testament and going, look, guys, this is not the first time this has happened. This is actually a fairly normal pattern. All right? Just like in Habakkuk, you need to persevere ultimately until the end. Now, final thing I want to talk about in this paragraph, and I want to ask you a question, and I, I want you to answer me. All right? What is the Christian's relationship to violence? Why would I ask that related to this paragraph? Relationship to what? Violence. Violence? What are the situations where something happens to you and you should physically fight back? You should kill them. Self-defense is a justification for fighting back. Okay. Self defense, self defense for what cause? What's that? Defense of another person's life. Okay. All right. What about theft of your property? Wouldn't you not necessarily have to kill them if they're, let's say, stealing something and they almost get off the property? But they drop the thing and run away before you shoot them or something. Sure, not necessary. Yeah, you're acting out of self-defense because they are technically mm-hmm. in the wrong there. Mm-hmm. And I guess one question that I've also struggled with in this is, to what degree is it, does their actions cancel out the immorality of killing? 
That's a good question. And I raise this here, right? Because it's something we really need to ask. And I mean, this is something that ultimately everyone has to has to have the, ultimately has to come up with their own moral opinions. Is it right, for example, if someone breaks into your house, is it right to shoot and kill them? Right. I'm not going to decide for you. Okay. Is there anything relevant in this paragraph related to this? What, the last paragraph? Yeah. Let me give you a scenario. All right. Let me give you a scenario. The government chooses to full-on persecute Christians, and they start taking your stuff as a persecution. What are you to do? I say this because, and I point this out specifically because, there is a very, very pro-violence as a response part of the American right. Okay? And you need to consider, all right, because it's really easy in times of issues to get all wrapped up emotionally, all right, in what's going on. And emotionally, that's when violence, when emotionality happens, fear happens, that's when violence can happen. What are the scenarios? You should ask in your brain now, in your mind, what are the scenarios where it is appropriate to hurt or kill someone? And I do think there are times, to be clear. But I think you should ask and think about it. Because what were to happen? All right? If, I mean, you see this silly stuff all the time, I think. It's not silly. It's, it's you want to take my guns? Well, yeah, you can take my guns from my, from my cold, dead hands. You know, that, that kind of thing, right? Is it appropriate for you as a Christian to have, to hold that position? What do you think? You can just answer in your own head, yes or no. At least... From the perspective of persecution, all right, we're not talking a scenario where somebody breaks into your house and you use a gun and you kill this person because you have other people in your house and you want to protect them. This is not this scenario, all right? This is not what's going on here. This is specifically Christians who lost their possessions, all right, because of persecution. What should the response be? Going by this paragraph, there seems to be a more noble response to persecution. It's more of a, this is something God has under control, and is less of a, I should fight back to this. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, you see that in other places in the Bible, mm-hmm. where instead of a, I'm going to kill you all and blow all your heads up kind of mm-hmm. reaction, it's more of a, you want to give a good image of Christianity even in the midst of persecution. And you might be becoming more like the world if you're fighting back immediately. And if it's someone who is straight up, though, going against all, all the laws, like the laws of the state, doesn't that give a kind of a different view than 
persecution. So I read What if the laws are changed that are and they're now persecutory? Something to think about, right? Christians must think about their relationship to violence. And Christians must think about their relationship to violence-promoting groups. Alright? Just to be clear, I'm glad Hitler was killed. Alright? There are certainly times, you know, should, should the West... If another Pol Pot happens, should we do something about it? Somebody needs to. Clearly. Somebody needs to put an end to that. Alright? That stuff is wrong, and sometimes violence, I can, I can justify it. But you need to think about it. You should think about it beforehand. And you should think about it politically. All right? And you should think about it and go, what are situations where I would be willing to do this? Would you be willing to fight for your property in the face of somebody just trying to steal it? Maybe. If someone's specifically doing it as a persecution, what should your response be? Yes, Joe. Well, like you said, it's one thing an armed robber breaks into your house, especially if he's armed. They're not given a chance. But the government, uh, your only recourse is nonviolent submission. And perhaps... Uh, Some would disagree. Yep, yeah, but there's... Uh, an alternative to, to join in with a political party that will address grievances and protests to the government non-violently. Sure. What if the government shuts that down? Um, you're, All they can do is kill you're you. living under a tyranny that's yeah. almost impossible to resist. Just remember that your reward is Right. I don't say this as a I am not a full on pacifist like violence is never the answer I am not but as Christians all right, as Christians if we look at the example of the early church and you see that here you see this in Jesus right um, it is typically very non-violent is there a place for violence? Should we be ready for that if necessary? Okay, yes, I'm, I'm in agreement, all right? When I say this, just because of the times we're in, just think about when you are following particular groups that have that violence vibe, because they're out there, all right? Keep in mind that... There's lots of Christians, and for hundreds of years, Christians have believed in just war theory, and there are times when war is just and violence is just. That is, not all Christians, some Christians have been full-on pacifists. Many Christians for a very long time have believed that there is a place for violence. All right? Um, we, as, as a spirit of who we are, we are nonviolent people. All right, and I've seen lots of people who are trying to promote violence. All right, be very careful of that, because it is not within our spirit to do this. 
All right. It is more within our spirit to be like this. The default in persecution should be where does vengeance belong? Belongs with God, ultimately. So keep that in mind. Exactly where you draw that line, it's up to you. Freedom of conscience. I'm a Baptist. You know, make up your own mind. But I... Just watch yourself with violent groups. I just don't see how Christians can use violence when they need to. I get it. But pro-violence. Because some of you know these people. I look at that and I go... That's not us. That's not our default. And this right here, I think, is a good example of that. How did you take the plundering of your property? You took it with joy, knowing you had something in the future. Right? Yeah. Um, would it be safe to assume that those who were doing the plundering in this case would be Jewish leaders and authorities and whatnot? kind of making the contrast between Jews and Christians off of the book, I would assume. It doesn't exclusively have to be, but it could. I wouldn't be. say so. Because often the Jews would get would loop the Romans into doing it, right? We see that in Acts. Because they were limited in their political power, and so, you know, they would loop others into it, so. Could you examine capital punishment from the same lens? I think that's a good choice. Should you? That's for you to decide. It's not, it's not necessarily a vengeance. That's for you to decide. And we got... Justice. Yeah. And, and if, if it's particularly heinous. Totally worth discussing, yeah. but let's not go on that rabbit trail right now. Okay. Yeah, let's not do that. Yeah. I think one quick thing that should be, really be considered when thinking about the groups mm-hmm. is a lot of them seem to be very hate-filled. It's not a... Yeah. Very, not a violence is probably justified in this scenario. It's a we hate you, so we want to kill you. Yes. So, when defending, when when fighting, you should probably be right, I think, to question what is your motive? Is it because you believe this is the right thing or because you just hate this person and want to kill them? Because knowing how I will react to things and just think about protecting people. I can see how it will cross the line and said, if I want to protect you, I just hold and hate you. And yeah. Protecting the ones I love, it's no longer a possible, it's no longer a, I guess, possible. Yeah. Here's a good general principle. There are people on the right and there are people on the left who want to get you emotional and get you irrational and want you to do dumb things. It's on both sides. You are way easy to manipulate. Every human is way easier to manipulate if they start yanking on your emotions of fear of the other, all that kind of stuff. Left and right. It's, it's happening. It's, it's the news. It's happening. Right. So just watch it. Okay. Thought is worth bringing up. It's something we should think about. All right. Something worth discussing more later, maybe not in quite this kind of scenario, more smaller groups, more one-on-one discussions. It's something that should be thought about and discussed. So 
please do so. Make up your deci- make up your mind now. Okay. Michael, will you close some prayer, please?